This is a replay of an important and popular topic that first ran in January of 2020. Enjoy this two part series as we continue to work on new content. Welcome to Around the Table, a new source for Christ centered teaching and conversations from an apostolic Christian perspective. It is a remarkable providence of God that we have Bibles easily available and in a language we can understand. How did the Bible come to us? Listen as that story unfolds in part one of a two part series. God speaks to us, and He speaks to us in the language that we understand, in the time that we're in, in the culture we're in. That's what He desires to do, and that's what Bible translations does for us. Sometimes it does it better, sometimes worse. There's a checkered history of what's actually transpired, but the truth is God speaking to His people through His Word. This is John Wiegand from Silverton. This is a topic that I'm interested in, and I'm visiting with Fred Witzick. He's a historian and goes to church in Washington, Illinois. Listen up as we go through this together. It's a beautiful thing. One of, one of my favorite stories in the development of the King James Bible is, is that the translators were divided up into groups. Each group was of, of scholars. Each group of scholars was commissioned to translate a certain section of the Bible that they, that they were best suited to translate. And then when they were done translating it, they sent their translation to a committee uh, made up of representatives from each of the groups. So as I recall, there's like 12 men who came together at the end to do the final edit of their, of their new translation. And they did their final edit by one man was chosen to read their new text, right? Their, their, new, their new translation. And they sat around this room, and you can imagine this, this medieval, you know, the old medieval room, scholarly library, you know, all these books and the, and one man is reading the text and every, all the other men in the room are just sitting there, right? You just imagine them maybe sitting back in their, in their chair and just maybe closing their eyes and listening to this new translation as it's being read. And they, they could, as, it, as, they, as they're hearing it read, they could raise their hand and dispute the wording. And generally speaking, they would, they would dispute it based on, I'm not sure that's the most accurate, you know, here's how Luther translated it, here's how the Italians translated it, here's, you know, here's Erasmus's Texas Receptus, here's how it renders it in Greek, you know, is this, so they could dispute it on that basis, on, on accuracy. But they could also raise their hand and say, that just doesn't sound good, right? This doesn't sound good. It's accurate, but it, it thuds. And what if we said it this way? So they would change it sometimes so that it sounded good. And they did this for a couple reasons. They believe that the more beautiful it is, the easier it will be to memorize it. And since people are going to be hearing this, you want it to stick with them. They want it to be memorable in how it sounded. So that as people heard it, they could memorize it and, and retain it in their heart. And then the other reason why they wanted it to sound beautiful was because they did feel like it was the Word of God. They wanted it to sound beautiful, reflecting the, the, um, the fact that we are dealing with the Word of God. But it does emphasize the art in the translation. Exactly. Because it's not that you just take a, a set of words in some order, run them through a dictionary program to say, translate this word to that. Exactly. That would end up with clunky and difficult to understand. Right. But their emphasis was ensuring that the, the power and the majesty in the word came through with it. Exactly. And I think there's tremendous wisdom in that. So, they wanted to communicate the fullness of of the language to the people. And to do that, they had to make it sound right. They had to make it resonate 
with people. So accuracy was very important to them, but so was making sure that it would actually mean something to the hearer. My mind went to 1 Corinthians 14. And in that, Paul just puts out that thought that the thing about our communication is saying things that make sense and can be easily understood. Yeah, and I think that's been a real passion and driving force behind all the translations into any language over the last 2,000 years or longer is the desire to make the Word of God comprehensible to people. The goal is that God's Word comes through and it can be heard and it can have the impact that men and women can come to salvation. So maybe we should back up and just think about the Word in its earliest days, just at the time of Jesus. We have Old Testament texts prior, but at the time of Jesus, what were the texts that they had, what languages were they speaking in, and how did that work? The Old Testament was written probably all or mostly in Hebrew, but in the last couple centuries before Christ, it had been translated into Greek. Uh, They called this Greek translation was the Septuagint. So, it was a Greek text. And so, Jesus and the apostles would have been familiar with that text. So, when they talked about the scriptures, they were talking about the same set of scriptures that we have, but a Greek translation of it. So, when Jesus would have, at the beginning of his ministry, opened the scroll and began reading, what he would have been reading in that would have been the Septuagint. Right. And so, that was their exposure to scripture. Now, things were being written about them as we move forward. Mm -hmm. So... Paul would write letters, Mm -hmm. Peter wrote letters, others wrote letters. That writing was in Greek as well. That was probably in Greek as well. So, the the texts that we have are in Greek and they were most likely written in that Greek language. Okay. Now, the original text, the letters written by Paul Mm -hmm. with whoever he was visiting with and they were penning it down, those letters are gone. Right. The actual papers that when when Mark sat down and, and wrote things down or when Luke sat down and wrote Acts or something, you know, those pieces of paper are called the autographs. And those are all gone. It's really no mystery. It's no surprise that those things are gone because they were probably written on very degradable material. So, those documents that were written disappeared over time. They were probably extremely popular, handed around person to person. Uh, perhaps even carried across the distance, so they were probably extremely well used, which explains why they're gone. But because they were so important, they were copied over many times. So, what we have are copies. We have thousands of copies, or at least pieces of copies of those original autographs. And so, if we have thousands of copies today, we had many thousands of copies Mm -hmm. back then as they were distributing them, sharing them, and being able to read them. Right. Now, we, we hear this description of the kind of Greek and the, the different levels of Greek that are available there. As we think through that, and maybe this ties back to our 1 Corinthians 14 thought initially, the Greek that was used for Scripture was the people's Greek. Right. people spoke. Right. And this has, I think, a really interesting story behind it. For hundreds of years, we thought that the biblical Greek was some sort of super spiritual language. Because the only other Greek that we had access to was the literary Greek of, say, Plato or Aristotle. And that is a very beautiful, uh, high-level Greek, but we thought it was kind of the everyday Greek, right? And then we have these Greek texts of the, of the New Testament books, and it's a different sort of a Greek than what we have from Plato and Aristotle and other Greek authors. 
And so, for many years, we thought that this was some sort of super spiritual text, right? That, that, that Paul and, and, you know, Jude and Peter and so forth, that they were all using some kind of special spiritual language. Until maybe hundred, uh, a little over a hundred years ago, some scholars found buried in the hot, dry desert of Egypt, they found some ancient Greek documents that were things that everyday people at the time would have written. And so, that Greek, the Greek of these contracts and letters and so forth, turns out that matches the Bible. And that's when Bible scholars realize, wait a minute, the Bible wasn't written in some super spiritual highfalutin language. It was actually written in the everyday language that any sort of Greek person would have, Greek speaking person would have understood. And so that discovery that the New Testament was written in common Greek was made late 1800s. Right. There's an inclination by all of us sometimes when we don't know things, we fill in the gaps with the stories that make sense. And so we spiritualized something in a certain way without really understanding what we were doing. And so the value of the scripture is truly there. But we somewhat elevated that style of the text without realizing the specialness of its being common. Right. And I think the beauty of, of knowing this, the beauty of discovering that actually the Bible was written in a common language, it does confirm that the Bible was written in a 1 Corinthians 14 message of, above all, we need to communicate in ways that make sense. The biblical authors wrote for the primary purpose of communicating the Word of God, of getting the message, the meaning of the message across to the people. Okay, let, let's think about the copies just a little bit. When I think about copying these uh, letters that Paul wrote and the Gospels that are there, that's, that's a serious task and it's going to be significant work. And when you make copies, the copies aren't going to be always exactly the same. Mm-hmm. So, I'm mm-hmm. sure that that happened in these copies as well. Right. There would be cases where things get missed, a line gets skipped as you're going through, mm-hmm. uh, typo. Right. I don't know what the writing term for a typo <laughs> right. is, but right. I'm sure you do those. All those things likely happened. Right. Yeah, for very understandable reasons. The Hebrew text came down over the centuries, and it was copied with incredible precision. Part of that reason is because they had a long tradition, a long history of scribes who are carefully trained in protecting the original language of the Old Testament scriptures. In the New Testament, it appears that we have something different. And that is, you get a sense that we're not going to be here very long, that Jesus is going to return very soon. And so, people care deeply about communicating the Word of God. But they did so in a way that was perhaps a little bit less careful than the Hebrew scribes, uh, in part because their goal was to take what Luke wrote, take what Paul wrote, and and make copies of it, send it on, just just copy them and send it on, copy, send it on. That's how they were so passionate about the letters of Paul, so passionate about these New Testament books. Because of that, we have lots of copies, but they don't necessarily read exactly the same. So, So, what you're talking about, I think, is exactly right. Uh, you have cases where a scribe skipped the word, repeated a word, skipped a line. Right. So, when I listened to that and would get that letter, mm-hmm. the truth of the gospel, God's word speaking to us, whether I had the prior or the next copy, that same truth is expressed. Exactly. Technically speaking, there are thousands, literally, tens of thousands of differences among the Greek copies. And that, in one sense, might scare somebody. But the vast, vast majority of them are errors that are quickly discernible 
Or that we could say we don't know what the original actually said, but it doesn't matter. So, Fred, when you talk about the energy and the zeal in the early church to share the word and knowing that Christ was coming soon, that that promise was there, some of the things they were sharing back and forth without writing down, Mm -hmm. the sense of just going in because of that urgency. And I think we see that especially with the Gospels. There are stories which are placed in different orders among the Gospels. They, they were orally transmitted right, without being written down necessarily in the, uh, uh, right away. In time then, Mark sat down and wrote down the stories that he felt were, was inspired by God to write and in the order that God wanted him to write to place each of those stories. And then Luke would do the same thing. And then Matthew and John, you know, each, each one writing down the stories either they had experienced in the case of Matthew and John or they had heard in the case of Mark and Luke. So, they're, they're, they're taking these oral stories and writing them down after the fact. One of the things I always hasten to remind my students who think of passing things down orally as a case of telephone Kids sit in a long string, and by the time it gets down to the end of the, you know, each person passes on to the neighbor, and by the time it gets down to the end of the row, it's a totally different story. That is not what we're talking about with oral tradition. When stories get passed down like this, it, it becomes extremely important that they pass them down accurately, which is why there is such close correspondence between the gospel stories. Even though they differ a little bit in some of the details that they include, there's there's tremendous correspondence between them. The fact that there are differences b- between the Gospels demonstrate that what we have are four separate independent testimonies to the life of Jesus Christ. They weren't just copying the same thing. That actually reflects their independence, and yet they mesh together, which reflects their truth. So, they came to those experiences with, with different interests, so it gets expressed somewhat differently. Right. But again, the the harmony of Scripture is is reinforcing and reflects that importance overall. Right. One of the things that I think is really interesting and faith-affirming for me is the sheer number of copies that we have gives us great assurance that we can come extremely close to the autographs. I can clearly see here how this copy produced in 500 A.D., reflects changes. I can follow kind of the family tree, right, of that of that copy, and I can trace it back, and I can actually chronicle when changes were made and when it was developed, right? So, by having so many copies, we can compare the two and come to a pretty large degree of certainty for most of the New Testament. There are some verses where, where we may never know exactly what Paul wrote word for word, but the meaning is pretty clear. Uh, is actually very clear. And so, uh, the fact that we have so many of them makes up the fact that there's differences between the two. So, we can have a a very high degree of confidence that we know what Paul said or at least meant to say, right, in in the original text. So, we have that family. We can tell where things started from. And we, we understand that those initial texts, we have Hebrew, we have Greek. And then the first translation or early translation of something else, would have been Latin. What you just referenced here is the Vulgate translation, a translation made by a scholar named Jerome, 
around the year 400 AD when he translated the Bible into the Old and New Testament into Latin. And while that was not the earliest non-Greek, non-Hebrew translation, it's arguably the most important one of that era. It was translated into Latin because by that time, by 400, Latin was the dominant language, especially of the religious folks in the Western church dominated by Rome. Jerome's Vulgate became the standard text for the Catholic church. But from 400 moving forward, that text, that Latin text, was the dominant text in the religious community. Right. Especially in the, in, in the West, under Roman Catholicism, the Latin Vulgate would have been what the priests, the monks, the, all the religious hierarchy would have been familiar with. Now, in most places in the West, the average person wouldn't have understood Latin. And so, the Latin Jerome's Vulgate was not really useful for the average person, which means that for the next thousand years or so, the average person on the street would have had limited access to the Word of God. When they went to church, they would have heard the Bible read in Latin in this Vulgate, and they wouldn't have really understood what it, what it meant. So, they would have had you know, whatever the priest felt moved to explain in their own common language, that's, that was their exposure to the Word of God. So, we're kind of fast-forwarding through a pretty big time frame here mm-hmm. from 400 to 1400 mm-hmm. or so. But as we step through that, the reality is that men and women as a whole really didn't have access to the Bible in, in the ways that we're used to. Right. And this is for, for two reasons. One, it was not perceived as necessary for the average person to learn to read, the average, just in general life. So, most people were not literate. So, to have a Bible in their own language would have been of limited use to them. But there's another reason as well, and that is they also didn't need to learn to read because it was perceived that they didn't actually need to read the Bible. The priests were good enough. The church would tell them what they needed to know about the Bible. So, they had access to the Bible through the priests mediated by the church. And so, there was a certain level of, of control over the Word of God as well. Yeah, so let me summarize that because at one level, the church was providing a service. They mm-hmm. were sharing the gospel message. They were communicating right. the Word. At another level, they were controlling the message. Exactly. And focusing on the elements that they wanted to emphasize and draw attention to. And and so, that's actually perhaps a good segue into English. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. We're, we're now in the, the late 1300s, 1400s. There's this interest. We want to share the, the Bible with the people. And this comes out of a desire to reform the church. When we think of reforming the church, we think of the 1500s with the Reformation. What we forget is that there were actually movements before the Reformation to clean up different aspects of the church. And so, the Word of God becomes very, very important. So, one of the earliest, most famous examples of this uh, is the example of John Wycliffe in the late 1300s. John Wycliffe was a critic of the church. He believed that the church had moved beyond, and in some cases in violation of, the scripture. And so, he had a passion for translating the Bible into English. And there were two purposes that drove this effort to translate the Bible. One purpose was, it's not enough for people to just hear bits and pieces from the Word of God. If they're really going to live godly, they need to have access to the Scriptures themselves and really immerse themselves in the Scriptures. The second purpose is that if we are going to reform the church and hold it accountable 
then the people need to have access to the scripture. Okay, so that we, so we have two purposes in translating the Bible. Both of them, uh, one of them is is consistent with the with the with the will of the church even at the time the people grow spiritually. But the other one is very dangerous to the church. At least the, the church hierarchy perceives a great danger in it. Right? Is that all of a sudden if, if people can read this, they're going to hold us accountable. They're going to disagree with us. They're going to challenge us, which is part of the point that John Wycliffe actually wanted. And so the impact of Wycliffe's Bible as that came out was likely well-received by the people that they now had access, and there was probably just a groundswell around that with the corresponding stress within the formal church structure. Exactly. And so, they translated the Bible into the common English language, and it was just soaked up by the people. So, they had to make copies, and we don't know exactly how many of them were made, certainly in in the hundreds, because we have... Uh, I think it's between two and 300 copies have survived till today, which is a huge thing. And these copies had to be made by hand. So, the passion for getting the word into the people's hands and the, and the, the, the people's desire to get access to the Bible is really inspiring. Very, very inspiring. And it shows the hunger for the word of God. I forget what an incredible privilege and one of treasure it is to have the Bible in my own language. The easy access that is just so familiar to us today hasn't always been that way. Right. And that's really a good reminder. And we're just at the cusp of the printing press. So, it is a different world that we're transitioning into. Before we go ahead, though, what would we call the language? How would we describe the English language at the time of Wycliffe? So, Wycliffe was translating from Jerome's Latin Vulgate, actually. He didn't go back to the original Greek and Hebrew. He used Jerome's Latin Vulgate into what scholars of the English language call Middle English. Another fascinating topic that we could spend a lot of time on is is the development of the English language. So, the English language began way back in maybe the three, four hundreds. It goes way back into the late Roman Empire and developed over, you know, from then until now. It's still developing, right? And so, so we have Old English, which is almost unintelligible, and there was a period in the late Middle Ages where it went through a phase the scholars called Middle English, and that's what that's what Wycliffe translated it into. And it was the dominant language of the people. The elite in England spoke French for historical reasons, but the common people spoke English. So Wycliffe chose to translate the Bible into English for the common people to read. That that the language they spoke then was Middle English. Thanks for listening, and be sure to check back in a couple weeks for part two. Around the Table is a production of Onward Media, a communications ministry of the Apostolic Christian Church of America.